0: Uh, This Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I have been at a conference at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley, and the title of the conference was Baptismal Water Thicker Than Blood, and I was privileged to listen to some of the best academic stuff that I've heard in a long time, and also some of the worst. The downside of attending conferences, the upside of attending conferences like this, is that you hear a lot of stuff that helps you with your enthusiasm and uh, uh, good uh, kind of intellectual stimulation. And the downside is, is that you get influenced by these academic presentations. So if I lose you in this sermon, I apologize in advance. However, the redeeming value here is that I actually started this sermon before I left for Berkeley, so the major and principal themes are still here. And here are the three things that I think the readings gave up to us today that are important. Uh, The first one is, what do Episcopalians mean when they speak of authority? Remember, in the gospel, the Savior is, is uh, described by those in the synagogue as one uh, speaking with authority. And how do we understand what is authoritative in our faith and belief and authoritative for us personally and corporately in the church? The second theme that is important in the readings is, what is our responsibility as a community of faith to uh, look after one another To be conscious that there are some people that are weaker than others. How do we uh, look after them but also maintain the kind of uh, personal integrity and sense of self that we need to uh, be healthy and whole as we move forward in relationship? What is our responsibility personally and corporately to those people who may be on uh, some shaky ground in terms of their faith, in terms of their emotional condition, in terms of their spiritual maturity? And finally, I thought I'd say a word to you about exorcism, because today Jesus exorcises the man uh, in the synagogue who is possessed with an unclean spirit. So what do we think about exorcism, and is it practiced in the Episcopal Church, and how do we think about it uh, as, as we move forward? You know, exorcism is very much in vogue in certain Christian circles and there are people who are uh, at the drop of a hat willing to come over and exorcise somebody in some way. So we need to think a little bit about how we understand this practice and uh, what it might mean and what Mark meant when he uh, uh, talked about it today in terms of Jesus' ministry. The principle, authority, and value in this culture, the thing that most people find authoritative in their lives today is the autonomous self. And that all efforts should be made to increase our ability to act in an autonomous fashion, to be able to be free beings, seeking our own level, in whatever way we can. And all of us know the benefit in our society of a free people. When I was preparing this sermon, Martin Luther's quotation came up, and I remembered this uh, from my seminary days, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all and subject to all. So that may say something to us about the reciprocal nature of the idea of the autonomous self. I'm getting a little ahead here, but I thought I'd just mention that in the beginning. So we have that sort of overarching predicate to contemporary American life And at the same time, Episcopalians believe that we have three places to look for what we understand to be authoritative for us, not just in religious terms, but in terms of the way we comport ourselves in our daily living and how we understand our responsibilities as a community and what we believe to be ultimately true about God's place in the world and our place in it in response to the divine initiative, which in practically every sermon I say is God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. Dr. John Macquarie, who died uh, about a year ago now, or two years ago, was for many years the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford. I had the privilege of meeting him when I was uh, a young priest at Uh, in Tucson, Arizona, I went to England and I met him uh, at at Oxford and had dinner with him and uh, I had to read, of course, his famous book The Principles of Christian Theology and he was, in the 20th century, for Anglicans one of the most important theologians uh, in our church and in his book he describes what we understand uh, by authority and before I get there The overarching way to think about this is what you've heard before. Episcopalians believe that there are three places to look for what is authoritative. The Bible, the Tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. By the way, you heard me mention last week that um, some of the most recent research on the brain would suggest to us that our thinking processes and our emotional processes are simultaneous. And I mention this because there are some uh, more conservative Episcopalians who would jump me for the third part of what is authoritative, including experience in addition to reason. And the fact of the matter is that if we understand in contemporary terms that these processes are simultaneous, our emotional states are caused also by our experience, aren't they? What it is at the given moment, uh, the experience is that provides both the necessity to think about it, but also we feel about it at the same time. When I was in high school, I had to read a book in my English class by E.M. Tilliard called The Elizabethan World Picture. Maybe some of you read it. It was a book about how people in the time of Queen Elizabeth and Shakespeare thought about reality. You know, one of the things he described was the great chain of being. That we understand reality as this sort of chain of being that starts with a stone and goes all the way up to God. All of the things in the creation. And when Richard Hooker, the Anglican priest who talked about scripture, tradition, and reason, would have used reason in the thought world, the Elizabethan world picture, he would have said, Reason must include experience because we must think about what it is that we're experiencing. So that's why I include it. Your personal story, your history, whatever issues might be besetting you are important. And they're part of the way you think about the deep things of human existence and about the deep things of Christian faith and life and about what in the world is going on in the world. So remember those three things, scripture, tradition, and reason. Dr. Macquarie would say the authority that we believe in is derived from Jesus Christ. You know, the, the triumph of the autonomous self and the belief in the autonomous self is derived from something. So you need to say, all authority is derived, and it doesn't just sort of bubble up and all of a sudden you decided I'm a, we decide I'm a free being and I'm dancing like Snoopy. It comes from somewhere, a predisposition, a first principle. So it is derived from Jesus Christ. The authority involves, in church life, in the tradition with a capital T, a consensus. Here's what the latest biblical scholarship about the New Testament has been demonstrating for about the last 30 years. The reason why the Christian church began was not because we had Jesus and then Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension and then a group of apostles got together and started talking about it and all of a sudden people started to come and be part of this. What is being given up to us now by the evidence that we have archaeologically with other new written material that has been discovered and so on is this was already in place when he was exercising his earthly ministry. There were already followers of Jesus Why is this important? Because the great spiritual figures of his era before and after all died and that was the end. But followers of Jesus continued on. And there was a movement already up and running prior to his death, accepting not only his Messiahship, but making the connections in these ways. This message that he preaches and teaches and exemplifies by his mighty works is a message that resonates with the great tradition of which we are a part as Jews. And we understand through our own sacred literature that what is present in Jesus, the historical man, all of the cumulative responses of God through our history And we see now the definitive and unique focus of the divine presence in him. And by virtue of that, we learn something else about our own tradition with a capital T, this idea of the authority of the church being something that comes by consensus. Because when we see this, we understand that this message now is not just for us, the covenanted people of God. It is for everybody. The Gentiles too. And so in the culture in which we live in, we're around a lot of people who are Greeks. Maybe not in their, in their ethnicity, but in their outlook, in their understanding. And this message is for them. And the categories that we use are now going to have to be both The Jewish categories that we know, the Hebrew worldview, but the Greek categories that we're aware of by virtue of living in the midst of this stew. So the consensus that comes is we now need to make this message part of how we understand truth and reality. This authority also is relativized in the sense that every circumstance, every historical era provides the stuff out of which the church, out of which individual human beings come to understand their place in the cosmos, what God wants them to do, and what their vocation in the world is in terms of making it a place easier for people to be good. And so we believe that there is an element of relativism here in the sense that this message holds true in every age. And finally, the authority in the Church that we believe in as Episcopalians requires some degree of intellectual integrity. You know, in one sense this may frustrate many people, But if you're serious about being an Episcopalian, you have made a decision not to follow the easier, softer way. You need to be a student of the deep things of Christian faith and belief. And in every age, the church at its best has always insisted on that, not in a hierarchical sense or an elitist sense, but the importance of learning something about the nature of reality that you need, we all need to take responsibility for and to do. And I've mentioned to you before that being a good student of the deep things of Christian faith and belief doesn't necessarily mean learning all of the abstruse terminology of the Christian faith in life. It means learning what it means to be a decent human being and connecting the dots between what you do in church on Sunday and then what you do out here for the rest of the week. One of the things I heard at the conference, which is very good, is there's two ways you can look at coming to Mass. One of them is to come on Sunday and use it as a reflection about the past week and that the difficulties and the challenges and the opportunities in front of you in the previous week are now the things you lay on this altar and find transformed by the Eucharist and the food of life that you receive. Or, you can look at coming to the Eucharist as the process whereby you are strengthened for the coming week and the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you for that. It's not either or. I happen to believe it's both and. But different Sundays we may have different emphases, you know. Sometimes we come, don't we, and say, thank God that week was over. And thank you for being here. Everybody for being here. Which then brings me... To Paul in 1 Corinthians, and that is dealing with a situation on the ground that may be uh, very obscure for us, but then again, maybe not. Here is the situation on the ground. Many of the people in Corinth, Greeks, prior to their conversion to Christianity, participated in what we call now the Greek mystery religions. And part of the Greek mystery religions was animal sacrifice. So when you killed all these animals, what did you do with the carcasses or carcassas? I don't know. What, how do you say that? You know, the dead bodies. Well, what they did was have a butcher shop by the temple where the animal sacrifice now could be purchased and eaten. And more enterprising butchers had a little restaurant sometimes attached to the butcher shop where you could sort of go have a little carne asada, (laughs) you know, whatever. So here's the thing. Some of the people who had participated in these Greek mystery religions felt a little edgy about eating this meat because they believed that they were in some way uh, participating in this religious practice. No doubt there were what we would call folk folk outlooks, pious practices that would uh, connect somehow going to the temple and sacrifice and then going and eating this meat as continuing on some way the effects and the efficacies of this. I don't know that for sure, but I'm just speculating. And so they said, you know, if we continue to eat this meat... Maybe that's what we're doing. And other former participants in the Greek mystery religion said, get over it, don't worry about it. Doesn't matter. It's over. In Jesus, you now have seen the unique focus of the divine presence, and we don't need to worry about this anymore. That was then, this is now. And Paul's comment is, that's right, but sometimes we need to pay attention to those who have some scruple. And at least to be aware with some degree of sympathy and compassion, how difficult it is for some people to make these adjustments in a quick sense. You know Some people pay a big price for their sensitivity. So it's important for us to understand that uh, we need to be sensitive to that. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about whether you should eat meat or not or whether or not uh, eating it's going to compromise your religious outlook. He's talking about how we look after one another in the body. And I suspect this is driven by his pastoral experience of the Corinthian church, a church on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement in the New Testament, as I say over and over again, and a fractious, conflict-ridden church who probably have some pretty high-minded and difficult people in the congregation who have very strong views about how people ought to behave and what they ought to do. And so Paul is seeking now to move them to another place, to a higher level, if we can say that. Finally, in the reading from Mark's gospel, we have the story of Jesus continuing his public ministry in the Galilee and in the synagogue where he's teaching, uh, casting out an unclean spirit in a man who shouts out in the synagogue. So let me say something to you about one of Mark's emphases. Mark believes that Jesus is the Lord of the spirit world as well as the physical world. And so he has dominion over the unseen world as well as the seen world. That means all the spirits and the demons. So throughout Mark's gospel, you will see that it is the spirits who recognize Jesus and refer to him by all of his messianic titles. They know who he is. Whereas in Mark's gospel, most of the time, the people watch him say, hear him say stuff, Watch him do things and their jaw drops and they have no idea. Not a clue. And Mark's point is Jesus has dominion over the unseen world as well as the seen world. You know what? You and I don't give proper credit to how much the unseen world influences and controls us on a minute-to-minute daily basis. Our thoughts, our feelings, our personal history... Whatever it is that we've been through or are going through, all of those things you can't see. And they have enormous power. And the gospel witness says, Jesus Christ has dominion over those in the sense that we know in this human being whose words and works we believe are indistinguishable from the words and works of God, constitutes for each of us a template that will assist us in the process of getting greater clarity about who we are, understanding our personal demons a little bit more clearly, and providing the inspiration for the fact that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And by that process, we have some idea now about how it is we are to proceed. Someone mentioned to me, Patrick, I think, said to me, after the sermon at 9 o'clock, I should say something to us about the power of the Internet, which is certainly an unseen force in contemporary society and has enormous influence now on the way people think and act. Doesn't it? So we maybe should say, you know, there's something in the ether that's important. Now, Jesus exorcises the man with the unclean spirit. By the way, in the Greek New Testament, the word for authority and power is exousia. You see where the, the, the play on words could take place between exousia and exorcism? Exorciso in Greek. So it's in there. If you read it in the original language or heard it read to you in the early congregations, you'd say, oh, Something like this authority comes from the ancient of days. Exorcizo means an oath to adjure somebody from doing something. To cast out this form of behavior. And that Jesus in some way stands now in line, but what he does in the New Testament is unlike anything done by the prophets of Israel. It is unique. What about exorcism in the Episcopal Church? Are we all following on the exorcist, or whatever the case may be? Or do we just go, oh, (laughs) that doesn't mean anything? Let me read something to you here. This is called the Book of Occasional Services. B.O.S. among the Konyoshenkis. It's a supplement to the Book of Common Prayer. And on pay of, the, of this edition, on page 174, here's a page. I ran across it again this week. I was looking. I, I couldn't remember. It says, concerning exorcism. Ooh. The practice of expelling evil spirits by means of prayer and set formulas derives its authority from the Lord himself who identified these acts as signs of his messiahship. Very early in the life of the church, the development and exercise of such rites, R-I-T-E-S, were reserved to the bishop, at whose discretion they might be delegated to selected presbyters and others deemed competent. In accordance with this established tradition, those who find themselves in need of such a ministry should make the fact known to the bishop through their parish priest in order that the bishop may determine whether exorcism is needed, who is to perform the rite, and what prayers or other formularies are to be used. So we haven't shut the door completely on this practice and maybe even say that it could be necessary. But let me drop down a level here and sort of bring this away from Linda Blair and whoever else we're talking about here. As I was preparing this sermon, I was reading a commentary on this gospel. And the commentator included a quotation from a, or the relating of an anecdote from a Presbyterian minister, I think in New York, who said this everybody who has been a pastor for any length of time has had this experience in one form or another. He was sitting in his office and the parish administrator came to the door and said, there's a man outside who says that he would like you to bless him. And He thought, as I would have thought, this is a testimony at how jaded we become, or how distracted. Oh, geez, he wants money. Well, send him in. Now, he's not come in yet. So we all have, we a mental picture of what this guy is going to look like. So in walks a man in a Brooks Brothers suit, beautifully groomed, and walks in and introduces himself, and says, you know, uh, Pastor, I would like your blessing." He discloses very little about himself other than he believes keenly that he needs this blessing. And he kneels down on the rug and asks asks the minister to bless him. So, he blesses him. And the guy stands up, puts out his hand and says, Thank you very much, and leaves. He said, You know, I always wondered what might have happened to him. But my experience is he knew he needed a blessing, and that's why he came. And it affords the opportunity for the person doing it to understand the power of blessing. The power of making present God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. So, don't think about exorcism or the need to... uh, Work on your personal demons as having some dramatic ritual associated with it. Sometimes I often believe personally, and I know this to be true anecdotally from people, the coming to the Eucharist on Sunday and the receiving of the spiritual food and drink from the most holy sacrament of the altar has in it the ability now to put at bay those demons and that committee that lives rent-free in your head to the side. And there is great spiritual power in that reality. That's why we come and we do it week after week. So this week, uh, think about what's authoritative in your life. Think about the possibility that other than the triumph of the autonomous self, there may be things that are true, whether you think they are or not. And remember, the church has always taught that we are not in possession of the whole truth at any given time. But all of us ought and should seek the truth. See if you have the opportunity to reach out and support somebody in whatever intentional communities you're a part of, who may be a little weak and a little fragile, and if you need to help them out. And finally, understand that the blessing of God is always present to you And that will help you with your own set of personal demons. Amen.